You are the most gift-giving God in the whole universe. And here we are at that season again that celebrates the greatest gift of all. Just a few more moments here together. But please, bring the gift to us, perhaps in a way we have not received it before. In Jesus' name, we wait upon you. Amen. A century and a half ago, the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem that he entitled, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And it goes like this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rung so long the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. While Longfellow went on to write a fourth and final stanza to this poem, I must tell you that as a result of the events of the last seven days, my heart is particularly and regretfully drawn to that third stanza we just read together. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Hate has certainly mocked the song this past week. On a festive evening last Saturday night, Jews from across Jerusalem gathered for their traditional post-Sabbath celebration at the familiar cafes of the Ben Yehuda Square. Laughter, friendship, when three suicide bombers strategically spaced 30 yards apart from each other, one by one detonated their bodies and turned that evening of friendship into a plaza of death with over 25 people exploded into eternity. And in response, hours later, Israeli gunships and fighter jets pummeled key Palestinian command sites, sending young Arab school children screaming into the streets. And now, once again, a continuing but renewed wave of war and death spreads like crimson in the sand in Israel and Palestine. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth until we are all blind and toothless. The very two men who were once awarded a joint Nobel Peace Prize are now with fang and claw at each other's necks. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song. And by the way, all the while this week, in a massive and military retaliation for our September 11 terrorist attacks, U.S. forces by land and air and sea continue to bomb Afghanistan deeper and deeper into the ground of its bleak wilderness soil. The first American casualties have come back in their flag-draped coffins, joining the hundreds and thousands of those already buried by September 11 and its ensuing days across the sea. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song. Why, even here, 
within our own figuratively walled and gated university community. We are not immune, nor are we shielded from a world without peace and a society without goodwill to all as we mourn the tragic death this week of one of our bright young students here at Andrews University. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Is there a phoenix of hope that can yet arise out of such despairing ashes? Globally, nationally, locally, privately. Open your Bible, please, with me to Isaiah chapter 9. How did, the, how did the poet put it? I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. Go to an ancient, ancient passage that became the basis for those carols that we have sung. Isaiah chapter 9. Words that were actually written 730 years before the birth of the Christ child in Bethlehem. Isaiah chapter 9. I'll be reading today in the New International Version. If you want a Bible, there's one in the pew right in front of you. It'll be the New King James in front of you today. But this is the NIV. Isaiah 9, verse 6, very familiar, these words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Of whom do these words speak? Oh, come on, we all know. All of Christendom recognizes the hero here. Do we not? I'm thinking of, we didn't hear it this year, did we? But uh, the strains of George Friedrich Handel's magnum opus, The Messiah. You listen to The Messiah sometime during the holiday. You put the CD on, I'm sure. How he took these very words and composed them into that celebrated score of music. How does it go? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We could sing it together. I'll bet you we could. And the government shall be... Well, you know the song. We all know of whom those words speak. Of course we do. We know. A commentary on the book of Isaiah put it this way, and I like this. There is patently, that sounds like an old English from England kind of word, doesn't it? There is patently but one person in the universe to whom the description here given can fully and adequately apply, and that is Christ. Nowhere else in the Bible do we find the loftiness of thought, the beauty of expression, the intensity of feeling found here in the description of the world's Savior and coming King. Wow. Read it again. For unto us... A child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called. Why did they say call it? It's called. And his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, I love how the new revised... Standard Version translates this. That's my normal preaching Bible, and this is just, just beautiful. When the mighty God and the everlasting Father became that child that was born unto us, notice how it's described here in the NRSV. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace. 
I love that rendition. And there shall be endless peace. The prophet is promising that when that baby comes out of that Bethlehem manger, one day the government will go upon the Christmas child's shoulders and that government will usher in endless peace. I mean, can you, um, what would this world, come on, help me out. What would this world be like with endless peace? You think about it. No war. Would there be war if if he had endless peace? No murder. No death. Endless peace. No fighting. No killing. No weeping. Endless peace. No courts. No jails. No hospitals. No cemeteries. You couldn't have them. Endless peace. The endless peace of the Prince of Peace. And we are told it would all begin with the unassuming, unpretentious, nearly unnoticed birth of a boy child in that dank, dark Bethlehem cave. The endless peace of the Prince of Peace. I want to tell you, it is the most des- off campus and on campus. It is the most desperate need in the world today. The endless peace of the Prince of Peace. But come on, folks, where is that peace? And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. This summer, I read Dominique Lapierre and Larry Collins' book, O Jerusalem, which movingly, movingly describes the Arab and Jewish struggle for control of that holy city ever since the year of Jerusalem's partition in 1948. It is a fascinating, it is a heartbreaking tale. No matter which side of the ongoing controversy and hostility you may find your sympathies today. But as you read, (coughs) pardon me, as you read the narrative of this historic struggle for dominance in the Holy Land, I'm telling you the overwhelming realization that will sweep over you. It will happen to you too. It is deja vu all over again. Because nothing has changed. Not a single iota of history has changed. We are still bound and fettered by the tale of the sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac and their sibling rivalry 3,000 years ago. It still is being fought out today. Nothing's changed from the 21st chapter of Genesis all the way to this very moment today. And George Bush, God bless him, And Tony Blair, God be with him, and all the allied coalitions in the world are incapable of ever achieving lasting political peace on earth, no matter how many times Colin Powell is sent to the Middle East. There is no human solution to the enmity that is as old as Cain and Abel and Ishmael and Isaac, brothers against brothers. Intractable human fallenness cannot be negotiated into permanent peace anywhere on earth, politically, socially, or humanly. Not Possible. Not possible. And I am now cynically, but absolutely convinced that all the peacemakers in the world, the Pope himself included, have not, are not, and will not ever be able to bring lasting peace to the ingrained and practically genetic enmity of the Middle East. And by the way, I am not so sure that the same would not also be true for the Hindus and Muslims in India. For the Protestants and Catholics in Ireland, for the Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda, for the blacks and whites in America. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, 
I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So when will the midnight song of the angels that Longfellow writes of, when will that song ever come true? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill to all people. When will the endless peace of the Prince of Peace ever become reality on this planet? Read the words again with me. Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Clearly, ladies and gentlemen, there is no government on earth today that rests upon God's shoulders. Not a single one. I don't care what nation you're from of the hundred that are here today. Not one of our governments rests on God's shoulders. There is not a government today that has lasted forever and ever. There is no such government, clearly. This promise, embedded in it like a diamond in the mother load of this prophecy, are actually two promises concerning the birth of this child. Two promises. There are two in the one, pro in the one prophecy. Let's put them up here. Twin promises. Promise number one, the Messiah would come once as a child to save us. But also embedded in the same mother load, promise number two, the Messiah would come again as a prince to reign over us. Both comings would bring peace. In his first coming, it would be personal peace. In his second coming, Messiah brings global peace. Two missions of peace. Only one Messiah. And it is that twin mission that has caused the confusion today among American Christians. And I'm going to be very candid with you right now. Give me a moment. Some of you are watching. American Christians are watching this telecast right now. It is the confusion over the twin missions of Messiah Prince that has led some Christians and some churches to make a grievous mistake about America and the American flag. The war in Afghanistan, the war against terrorism today, is not a Christian war, nor is it a messianic mission. It is purely, it is positively a political war with a national mission. Now, you would never have guessed it after the tragic events of September 11, the way some congregations and churches immediately wrapped themselves in the American flag. Now, look, folks, of course, as a symbol of solidarity with those who have suffered such grievous losses that day, the flying of the flag is a powerful emblem. We all have homes where that flag can be flown. But to turn Christian worship into a patriotic rally wherein the national anthem is sung as a worship hymn and God bless America, which we pray that indeed he will, becomes our worship theme song is neither right nor prudent. I'm all for having two flags on the Christian's worship platform. The flag that symbolizes the ultimate kingdom that we are responsible to, the Christian flag. The flag that symbolizes the country wherein we worship, in this case, the American flag. But to drape and wrap a house of worship in the flag of any nation is to be duped into the shadows of civil religion. 
and the creation of a civil religion within the Christian church is a dangerous precedent that can become a snare and noose for the church in a time of greater crisis. And I promise you, we have a time of greater crisis still coming. Let's go to Nazi Germany for a moment. Sixty years ago, the German church, that would be Lutheran, wouldn't it? The German church's submission to state Nazism and her compliant flying of the Nazi flag in her worship six decades ago is a somber warning to the subtle dangers of wrapping Christianity inside the American flag. The Lutheran church now knows it made a serious mistake in aligning itself with the national government. Until finally men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller broke away and established the confessing church, refusing to yield to the civil religion of the state. Ladies and gentlemen, history warns us. Patriotic zeal can silence the moral conscience if the patriotism of the majority is allowed to dictate the practices of the minority. The apocalypse, I, re I remind you, the apocalypse is more than clear that civil religion one day will become utterly uncivil in its rule over moral dissent. And that is why, on that faithful early, early morning, when the Prince of Peace stood there bound and nearly gagged before the Roman governor, that is why Jesus spoke the words that it is imperative for a church in a land in crisis to remember. John, the Gospel of St. John, put it on the screen, please. John chapter 18, verse 36, the words of Jesus to Pilate that morning. My kingdom is not, N-O-T, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. These words of the Prince of Peace are a compelling reminder to the church that political peace and moral peace are not and will never be synonymous. They're not the same. We have two completely different agendas. So the question begs repeating, when will the endless peace of the Prince of Peace ever become reality? You want, you want my answer? Subsequent to September 11 and the world in which we all now live, the clash of ideologies, religions, and cultures of Islam, of Judaism, and of Christianity now are convincing proof that we will never, we will never have peace on earth until the Messiah comes the second time. Period. Period. But when Messiah comes again... Oh, by the way, Dwight, are you saying that we are... I, I was planning to go into the diplomatic, uh, diplomatic corps and I wanted to be a part of the State Department team and I wanted to help our nation somehow secure peace on earth. Should I not do it? Absolutely, of course you must. Should we not pray for our governments that they might succeed in the peace ventures? Absolutely, of course. But let us do so pragmatically realizing that there will never be endless peace until the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Himself returns. And oh boy, when he returns, wow, look at this. You want to see the messianic peace that will come? Just turn two pages, two pages forward in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Look at this, will you? Isaiah chapter 11. Exquisitely clear Isaiah is 
of a world of peace that will be ushered in by the coming of the Messiah again. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, let's pick this up in verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down to, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. Wow. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then when the Messiah comes, then at last the angel's song comes true. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill to all people. And by the way, then... The last stanza that Longfellow composed will, in fact, come true. Here's that last stanza. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, good will to men. Hallelujah. The endless peace of the Prince of Peace will be ushered in for all the earth, for all time, forever and ever. Amen. But we're not at that amen yet. Today's ongoing war is proof enough that in this present life, we're talking about the life right here. The only peace that can be endless peace is the personal peace. It comes from knowing the Prince of Peace. That's it. There's no other endless peace available. Which is why the preoccupation of the church over the politics of peace is a mistake. We ought to be preoccupied with the gospel of peace as the Scriptures call it. And Isaiah won't let us leave this morning without telling us of what is that gospel of peace. And so on this last Sabbath of this semester, I want to end with the gospel of peace. Just turn chapters until you come to Isaiah 53. It's a story of this boy child that was born unto us who grew up to become a man, this Messiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, we pick it up in verse 2. He, the Messiah, grew up before Him, God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty. He was not of the Hollywood type. There was nothing in His physiognomy to draw us to Him. He was a plain man. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Are you suffering today? Are you going through the heartache of your life? Are you facing the biggest battle of your journey? There is somebody who has walked this way. He knows the suffering. He knows. He is familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Have you sinned between last Christmas and this one? Have you sinned at all? I have. Majorly. Every sin between these two seasons, these annual reminders, every sin he paid it. He was crushed. For our iniquities, the punishment, here it comes, here it is, here it is. The punishment that brought us peace was, now will be, 
We don't have to wait for this endless peace. The punishment has already been paid. It was on Him. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Hallelujah. What do you say? Did you catch that line? The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. At last we found it. The artesian well of endless peace. It, it, it is that crimson fountain unleashed at Calvary. How did the poet put it? My sins, my sins, my Savior. How sad on Thee they fall. Every sin of my life was born by my Savior. Every sin. Every habit you're struggling with right now. There is no peace. You know the battle I go through in my life. Every addiction that is holding you like a vice grip around your neck and choking off your life air. Every habit, every addiction. And most of us look at our fingernails and say, well, oh, I hope that guy made it today. Hope he's here. The fact of the matter is, most of us here are addicted to self. We are addicted to ourselves. And it is pride. It is the adder of pride that keeps sinking its fangs into our careers, into our marriages, into our children, into our roommates, into ourselves. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. My sins, my sins, my Savior, how sad on Thee they fall. But ladies and gentlemen, because the punishment was upon Him, we have the assurance today that endless peace can be ours right now. Right now. So I want to end today, wrap up this chapter of our journey post-September 11. I would like to end today with an invitation. There's a man here today that is struggling for peace. The war that rages in your own heart, sir, is ready to have someone sue for peace. You may sue for that peace. You may ask for that peace. Today, if you will step forward, I don't care how long you've been in the church, I don't care who you are. Today, if you will step forward to the Prince of Peace, you may have His gift of endless, endless peace. There's a man here today who would fly the white towel of surrender and ask for peace. I'd like to invite you right now. We're not going to have any music. I'd like to invite you to come and join me here at the front because I'm coming down in just a moment. If there's a woman here today whose heart longs for peace to be declared in her life, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter to me, it doesn't matter to any of us, if you need peace today, and you know that that peace is in the nail-scarred hands of the Prince of Peace. It's as simple as asking.
I'd like to invite you as well to slip out of that pew from the back of the balcony to the front of the church and the symphony behind me. I'd like to invite you to come right here to the front. We have struggled for peace these past 12 months. Never mind September 11. We have struggled. I have struggled. Why not this season? In an act of public confession, ask the Prince of Peace to step into our lives and to bring to us what we are most hungry for, what we most deeply long for today. Is there anybody else that needs that peace? Nobody will keep track of whether you came forward, but there is a God in this universe who says, My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Come to me. Let it not be afraid. Is there someone else? On the very back of the balcony. Maybe you're watching on television right now. You need the peace. Come to the Prince of Peace. There's no way we can sue for peace. The, the, the war goes on. The forces are too strong. A greater power must take command if this war shall ever know peace. So I'm going to slip down here because I want that peace. There's no point in journeying into a new year as we shall in just a few days without that peace. Is there anybody else? A marriage, a career, an academic journey has fallen apart financially. How can there be peace in my life now? You're suffering. You're suffering and you are certain peace will never come to you again. My friend, the Christ of Isaiah 53 went through your suffering in advance so that when it would come to you, you might with peace pass through it with Him. Is there anyone else? Anyone else? Let us pray. Oh God, all we're asking for is your peace. Peace from our guilt, peace from our warfare, peace from our anxieties. Peace from our fears. Peace from our insecurities. That's all we're asking this Christmas. Please, Holy Father, You have already sent the Prince of Peace. He died to secure our peace. But now humbly with hands and hearts outstretched to You, we ask, for endless peace, your gift. O oh God, have your way.
And may no man, may no woman, may no young adult, may none of us leave this place without that peace. And oh Jesus, we really do want you to come soon. Please. It's just getting worse down here. We're dying down here. We're suffering down here. All six billion of your children. Oh Christ, please. Bring that peace soon for all the world. We pray in the name of the Prince of Peace. Let all the people say, Amen. Amen.